What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hi, and welcome to this episode, an ecology event around the impacts of light at night featuring Dr. Emily Fobert, who is a research fellow in the Fisheries Science and Biosciences Department of the University of Melbourne. Uh, I've had the pleasure of meeting Emily, who did a fantastic talk live for me a couple of years ago and was one of our favourite speakers at the event. She uh, has an interesting perception of life through the marine and freshwater environment and put this to good use with a research uh, piece of work that she did on our little friend Nemo. Now, you know you've hit on luck when uh, you're getting tweeted and repeated and on every form of media uh, when your research has developed so much that everybody's talking about it and that's exactly what happened with the work that she did on the impacts of light at night on the clownfish. So without further ado, join me and Emily as we discuss this and get an insight into her research. As always, at the end, if you have any questions, please email us at marnie at darkskytraveller.com.au or you can see her webpage at the University of Melbourne, Dr. Emily Fobert. Hi, with a flick of a switch, we turn night to day and day to night. We can change seasons, actions and states of mind. Light is everywhere, used endlessly and very much a part of our modern world. But what is it? How do we use it? And how is it changing our environment and our behaviours? A Starfield Sky used to be our evening's entertainment. Now it's Netflix, iPads or even a podcast. When was the last time you looked at the night sky? I'm Marnie Og and this is Dark Sky Conversations, the podcast that brings people and science together to shed light. So um, today we have a wonderful guest. In fact, I've had the joy of hearing Emily Faubert. Is that how you pronounce it, Emily? Either that or Faubert. I think originally it was French, but yeah, yeah. I don't really French anymore. So. I think that's I think that's my French um my Francophile traits coming through there. So, yes. So Emily Faubert. I can't even say it any other way. Thank you, Patrick. Um, is joining me today and you to answer some questions about light pollution and in particular a little fish that some of us may know as Nemo and the impacts of light pollution on it. But I'm going to start off, and I, I never really do backgrounds on people because I think people can do their own background better than I could ever do it. Tell me, Emily, how did you go from being a Bachelor of Journalism major into biology? And Yeah, tell me your journey. And research. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I've, I've always been interested in science. Um, and I went into journalism because I wanted to be a science writer. Um, I thought it would be a good career. I'd learn new things every day. Everyone you talk to, you, you learn new things. It's great. Um, and then a couple things changed my career path. The first was um, 
I had a few jobs where I was interviewing scientists and they were telling me all about their amazing research and amazing places. And I just got a little bit envious of, of their jobs. And I was sitting in an office on the phone doing interviews. Um, another one was I was an undergrad. Um, I was taking all the science courses that I could as electives. And uh, a friend of mine convinced me to do um, a, a tropical ecology field course in Cuba um, as, as a credit. And she was a scuba diver. So she also convinced me to get my open water diving license so I could be her research partner on this, on this trip. So we went and spent three weeks in Cuba, living on an old fishing boat, doing diving and looking at corals. And it just changed my life. It was amazing. And I, was, I remember sitting there on the boat thinking, wouldn't it be great if I could do this for a career instead of sitting in an office? <laughs> and so I did. <laughs> yeah. I went back, I finished my journalism degree, but I also did a, a biology degree as well. And because I was taking a lot of science electives already, it was just an extra year to get the second degree. And um, I just kind of continued from there. And my, my career path's been a little bit all over the place doing freshwater research um, before actually making it to, to marine. Um, and then I moved to Melbourne for my PhD where I did marine ecology the first time um, and that was temperate reefs so still not quite coral reefs but I've since um, really focused on coral reefs after my PhD so it's been, yeah I finally finally got there. <laughs> well it's always a journey uh, you know it's very rare you hear somebody say oh yes I left you know I left high school I left university and I went straight into this and I've been doing it for the last you know 20 years or however long it is it, it, it's always something and, and, and I think it's those layers that actually build upon layers that make you an interesting person and give you that that, that skill set to make you know research possible in the areas that you, you're doing, or well, not just research, but any any goals you want to achieve. So you, you mentioned you moved from Melbourne. Just quickly, where did you come from? Oh, sorry, I'm I'm from Canada. So I grew up in um, just outside of Ottawa, the capital of Canada, very landlocked. So grew up by the water, <laughs> um, by the Ottawa River, but. Um, had no experience with the ocean before this this Cuba trip, which was probably uh -huh. another reason why it was so life changing for me. Yeah, really exotic for you in, in a sense. And it, it sounds in a way that you've made up for it in the meantime, because I also read that you spent some time in the Maldives. Is that? Yeah, yeah. I've had um, well, before COVID. I I was very lucky. I got lots of um, experience for for research. I went to the Maldives. Um, for a research trip, I went to Malaysia and spent some time in French Polynesia. Um, so I've had, <laughs> yeah, very, very lucky, I think, with my research trips. But oh, clever. You've chosen well. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. yeah, fantastic. So I guess let's get on to the topic because, you know, when I saw this, the research come out on this, I it, it hit me first on Twitter and then I started seeing where all, all the, you know, the, the, the multitude of magazines that picked it up, both professional scientific research papers and 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 just common everyday, you know, Sydney Morning Herald type things. Um, and it basically said artificial light is killing Nemo. So how did you fall into, you know, why did you decide to start studying the clownfish? And, yeah, that's, well, I chose clownfish. Well, yeah, I, I, I got into looking at impacts of artificial light at night on fish um, 
not not that long ago, like 2017, I joined a colleague, Jack O'Connor, on a research trip to Morea, um, French Polynesia. Um, and he was working on a project, or we were working, but it was his funding, um, on a project on impacts of light pollution on um, behavior and physiology of um, coral reef fish at the settlement stage. So when you know, larval fish are, they go out into the ocean and they have a, a dispersal phase of you know, a couple days to a couple weeks. Um, and then at a certain point, they come back to the reef and they, they settle um, into either nursery habitat or onto the reef where they stay for the rest of their lives. Um, so we were looking at that stage and I think that really turned me on to um, light pollution and maybe it's probably the first time that I really thought about light as pollution. I think as a lot of people, you just, you don't really think of it. And then once you, once I, I realized that it, it had these impacts, it's just, you realize it's everywhere and, and we don't actually know that much of what, what the impacts are, um, especially in the marine environment. So um, that, you know, that project uh, was, was really good good project we found some really really interesting results from that one as well um but we kind of came out of that with more questions than, than we had <laughs> answers and um so that really started my my focus on um impacts of light pollution in the marine environment and so i i wanted to look at impacts on reproduction because reproduction is really really critical obviously um stage for you know the continuation of populations it's critical for fitness of, of populations um and i chose clownfish because um they are they're site attached species which means they they when they come out of the dispersal phase of zorbin fish and they settle on they find an anemone and they stay generally in that anemone for the rest of their lives so Unless the anemone is bleached or it dies, um, but that's a whole other area of research. Another climate change issue. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I just had a paper come out actually that showed that um, oh, it's an observation we saw in Malaysia with clownfish actually moving like 150 meters from their anemone because um, anemones were bleaching. So they're searching wow. for, for new yeah. homes. But generally, <laughs> they stay in that, in that one anemone for the rest of their lives. Um, so if that anemone happens to be, you know, exposed to light pollution, those fish are really vulnerable. Um, uh, clownfish also live quite shallow, um, anywhere from about a meter down to, I think 50 meters is the deepest it's they've been recorded, but generally like one to, you know, 15 meters. Um, so they could be vulnerable to, uh, coastal light pollution um, from sky glow because it's quite shallow, but also from direct sources from marine infrastructure. And cloudfish also have um, benthic eggs, um, which means- I have what, sorry? Benthic eggs, that's right. what we call them. So the eggs are, are attached to the bottom of the ocean. So they're attached to a rock with a reef um, next to or under their anemone. So that means the eggs don't move. Other fish sometimes have what we call pelagic eggs so they just release the eggs into the water column and they just disperse off the reef but because the clownfish eggs are also site attached that means the embryos in that stage are also vulnerable to light pollution so um, I think just that limited movement in multiple life stages makes clownfish a really uh, good species to kind of investigate the potential impacts of light pollution mm. on, on reef fish and 
there's lots of other reef fish who have similar um, lifestyles. So a lot of fish, when they settle, they um, they recruit to either nursery habitats or really shallow rock pools or mangroves um, or really shallow reef. And then they'll you know move a little bit deeper as they get older. Um, but some also just settle directly to like a single coral head, mm-hmm. 20 centimeters by 20 centimeters. And that's where they live for the rest of their life. So it's not an uncommon lifestyle choice for reef fish, um, but clownfish just kind of exemplify that. Yeah. And not to mention it's a fabulous mascot. You know, it's just something that almost everybody can relate to. And, you know, well, I have to say, I have learned that when you study charismatic <laughs> species, for your study species, it gets a lot more attention. Than yeah, it's sad but true. And, it, it, you know, it, it's always difficult when you're the person studying cicada larvae or something that yeah. it's not <laughs> it's not quite as not as um not as beautiful as you were talking then I was thinking about actually particularly you, you mentioned Maria and I was thinking about the you know the overwater bungalows that would probably be exactly these you know these places that, that the clownfish is nesting and wondering you know how prolific is this issue you know do clownfish I guess there's coral caves and atolls etc that are further away and perhaps less um, impacted by sky glow and immediate light sources but yeah yeah so that that was one of the reasons I think I um, really focused on light pollution is after my experience in in Morea like it is a pretty remote tropical island there's not that much development on the island and still the light pollution is really prevalent especially from these you know tourist destinations like overwater bungalows um and so yeah it just makes you realize it is light it's it's everywhere um it's hard it's hard to say I mean the research hasn't really been done beyond my study of what the actual impact of this is on clownfish. Um, like I, I mentioned, they, most coral reef fish have this larval dispersal phase. So once the clownfish hatch from their eggs, they will go off the reef and, and disperse for about two weeks before coming back and settling to the reef again. And some fish come back to the same reef and some fish go like long distances. So you really need to understand how those populations are connected to really get to mm. what actual impact is of the light pollution. So what could be happening is there's certain populations that end up, um, you know, not, not producing any viable offspring, but fish from other reefs might still come back and settle there. Mm. Um, so it will have an impact, but it, you know, it really depends on how the populations are connected and whether it, you know, a population will go extinct or not if it's got you know, fish mm. elsewhere to kind of rescue it. I guess that's the same as territorial animals, really, isn't it? It's you know, you, you could have a, a group of marsupials or whatever in the in a tree that are completely impacted by, but maybe they move on. But but as seems to be evidence with um, birds, is that you then have the tiny weeny space of area that is actually right for them absolutely overpopulated with species as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm just looking a little bit into the research you did. It, it mentioned that you had 10 sets of clownfish, is that correct? And then, they, yeah, um, and there were pairs and, and it mentioned that when you put them under artificial light uh, and they were going through this process of 
you know, the eggs, everything. Only 86% of them actually hatched, is that right? Under the lights? Yeah. No, under the lights. So, yeah. sorry, 86% didn't, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm. so I had 10, 10 pairs of clownfish in my lab um, and I monitored their, you know, how frequently they were spawning, uh, whether the eggs were being fertilized. Um, how many eggs survived to, to hatch and then how many larvae actually hatched. Um, and I found there was no impact of the lights. Um, so, so I had two groups. I had a control group and a light L group. Um, so I compared the you know, spawning frequency and fertilization rates between the control group and the, the group of fish that were exposed to light at night. Um, and so there's no difference in the spawning frequency or how many eggs were fertilized. Um, but when I looked at hatch rate in the control group, we had pretty consistently around, you know, 80, 86% of the eggs would hatch. Um, and for the eggs that were exposed to light at night, we had zero, zero percent hatch. Um, and it's, it was a very small sample size. I was limited by how many fish I had and how many were actually decided to reproduce. Mm -hmm. I also learned um, reproduction studies are really challenging. <laughs> don't always cooperate. Um, so it, it was a small sample size, but the, the really convincing thing for me and for, I think for everyone, why it was published and why everyone picked it up was I then uh, removed the lights and monitored the reproduction again for a period of time and as soon as I removed the lights um the eggs that, that from the parents that were exposed to lights hatched again at like 86 percent hatch rate so back to exactly the same as the control group so it's clearly that presence of light that mm. was something that was inhibiting the eggs from hatching mm. that's amazing <laughs> and, and can I just clarify were they the same eggs? So were they the Allen eggs that were sitting there and then as soon as you turned the lights off, they started to ha hatch? Or was it another was it at another round that you did that? that yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, it's a different, different clutch, different group of eggs. Mm -hmm. Um, but same fish. So I guess my questions were, is there something happening, you know, to the parents? Is their behavior changing? Because they spend a lot of time caring for the eggs. So I thought perhaps. It's the parents are investing as much in the eggs and for caring for the eggs, maybe they're not developing properly and they just don't have the ability to hatch. Um, but it, so it wasn't the parents because um, the next clutch of eggs hatched just fine. Um, and so the, the parents were, were constantly around in both, both, both scenarios. Yeah. Non, yeah. Mm -hmm. mm, yeah. Amazing. You're listening to Dark Sky Conversations with Marnie Ock. We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So is there more research going into this? Is there a next phase of this? Is there something, is there a, a solution that you're trying to pose to this? Or, yeah, where? what's next? Well, I think the solution is uh, turn off the lights when you can. <laughs> mm. um, I have lots more questions. Uh, I'm... I'm still working on a few I've, I've done a few more studies from that um from my last job so that was all done when I was working at Flinders University and I had a lab of fish which was great um so I've got th- uh, three more papers that I'm still working on getting out there um so one of them was is looking at that parental care so you know if the light was also affecting the the behavior of the of the adults during that stage because that could also um, will impact the, the parents' fitness and their subsequent reproduction if they're spending a lot of energy mm-hmm. caring for the eggs, um, or if or they're spending less energy because they're really stressed, that can affect um, them long term their reproductive fitness. Um, and I just, I just actually analyzed that data um, yesterday, and their behavior changes slightly, but it's, I don't think it's okay. Um, and I have another study where I, I'm looking at physiology. So what, um, not related to reproduction, but just what happens to fish that are, are exposed to light? What, um, how does it affect their um, uh, oxygen consumption? So their you know, stress levels and their metabolism and um, which, which has impacts on their... Of course. Yeah. 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 Um, but just a question which I didn't ask is, was there a particular type of light that you were exposed to these fish to? Was this just a typical, you know, normal, you know, whatever the average marine light is or was it ambient, you know, sky glow type light levels? Or So I, I used um, just LED lights. So it kind of to, um, to uh, what's as, a, as a sort of direct source of lights. Um, mm-hmm. So... Yeah, I know like sky glow is still an issue for sure, but um, I guess I'm, I'm thinking more about for clownfish who are, you know, directly under or next to the lights coming off of these overwater bungalows or piers where they've got lights shining down into the water. So it's more of a direct source so that I use light levels of approximately 15 lux for, for the reproduction experiment, um, which is higher than sky glow, but some some lights coming off piers or bungalows mm. reach up to like 200 lux. So it's, it's conservative in that sense. Um, I did, I have a student do a follow-up study um, on the reproduction 
of clownfish and looked at whether different wavelengths of light had different effects on, mm-hmm. on the sound rate and the reproduction. Um, and not surprisingly, I think blue, bluer wavelengths had more impacts on, on the reproduction and the embryo quality. So she actually looked at the size and condition of the embryos before they hatched. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, the finding was light is bad. So whether it's the blue light or the warm yellowish wavelengths, it's still they still didn't hatch. So I still didn't hatch. Right. Oh, we had we had slight. I think we had like four or five percent hatch rate, but yeah. it was still massive. It's minimal. Yeah. 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 So you've got these light traps basically, whether the fish is staying, and it, it it reminded me a little bit of um, the work that. Andre Chiaradio does at Phillip Island in Victoria as well, where they have the shear waters and for a period where they're, I guess, migrating or learning to fly. I'm not sure when and when it is exactly, but, and in fact, I should have him on as a, as a podcaster. Um, but they turn off the bridge lights and the environment lights for a certain period of time, knowing that that's going to be the most influential and you know successful for the birds is there something that you could recommend for clownfish mm. is there a breathing season that we could turn the lights off for or out you know is it three hours a night that they must be turned off that would help you know I don't know yeah so that's um that's a good question and yeah I think that's a good future study to confirm mm. um I suspect that there's not really a breeding season for most found fish, depending on where they are um, and latitudinally. So yeah. in those tropical areas where there's not really those seasonal changes and it's quite warm all year round, um, the fish often spawn year round. And clownfish will spawn one to two times a month, I think. Um Again, depending on temperature and and light and everything, um, so and they're not always like synced, so that would re- really require turning lights off all the time. So there's not really a, a you know single season, a single week of the year, month of the year that it's really important. Mm, it's not like turtle breed, but you know, and again in, in Queensland, I think they have the the week in Bundaberg where they turn all the street lights off and house lights off just to help the hatchlings make their way to the beach. Yeah. Mm. Um, but I think that most clownfish and a lot of other um, coral reef fish, the the larvae will hatch um, just after sunset. Um, so this helps their survival if they're hatching when it's dark and there's not as many predators that can see them. They're quite small and trans transparent at that stage. So I think you know if it's dark, they just kind of escape off the reef without being noticed. Um, compared to, you know, bright out. There's probably lots of predators there waiting for them. Um, so depending on the species of fish, I don't know exactly what that time frame is, whether mm-hmm. it's an hour after sunset or three hours after sunset, but um, it is possible that, you know, delaying the, the onset of lights for a couple hours um, could could help some fish hatch better. Um, yeah, but that's yeah. probably also when people are still awake and up and going out for dinner on the overwater restaurant and 
uh, want the lights on. So it, that's, yeah, it would be nice if it was in the middle of the night. <laughs> yeah, it would be. It, um, it, it kind of makes me think, though, you know, we seem to have forgotten the art of personal responsibility. So could you not, you know, just give everybody a torch to get back to their cabin? You know, do you have to have lights pelting down for seven hours every night or more, depending? Um, yeah. And yes. Mm, that's it, it's still safe it's still anyway that's just that's just a little tirade on my yeah. <laughs> yeah um I had another question I've gone completely off of course anyway um yeah I think that the question is always around when you know when we're using lights how do we use them and it always comes back to well we you know it, it's an environment that didn't ever have it before 150 years ago and we haven't evolved and including all the species yeah yeah I, I think the answer is always if you can reduce the light whether for a duration of time or an intensity it's going to be better for wildlife just mm. in general well, the, the first principle of the National Light Pollution Guidelines is recognise that darkness is an asset. Yeah. Consider if you really need to light it. Um, yes. yeah. But we've, we've fallen into the trap of making light the standby option, haven't we? You know, it, it's meant to keep us safe. It's meant to, you know, mm -hmm. it's just there. We just incorporate it into all of our buildings and all of our infrastructure and, yeah. 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 Part of our part of Ads's role, I guess, is challenging that a little bit. Yeah. And actually, that's what I was going to say: is that it's really interesting that as humans, we tend to think of darkness as being scary and something that we try to avoid. And yet, you look at the natural world, and so many species actually need that cover of darkness mm -hmm. to, to commence their life, or to keep safe, or to hunt, or to yes, exactly. <laughs> but as humans, we are diurnal. We're not nocturnal. So, you know, yeah. our, our world is very human-centric. And, and um, yeah, we we don't have the eyes to be able to see as well at night as a lot of animals do. And so, you know, for us, I guess it is a bit scary um, if we were you know, living in in the you know, caves mm. day. And, you know, that's when the lions would be out hunting and we would be hiding so although I think there's a lot of research to say too that we've become dependent on light so our eyes aren't adjusting as well to darkness we're not you know when we also don't give ourselves time to adjust to darkness we we walk out of our bright houses into dark darkness and and we of course we can't see but if we've been out there since and I often do this with groups to start groups at twilight and you, you, it becomes dark and you haven't even realised because you've yeah. been adapting the way the, 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 the evening has naturally been adapting as well. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, we're not, we're not afraid of lions anymore. So we can, we can deal with this, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I think you wouldn't think so. So um, Emily, you, I know you're also heavily involved with a group called Neryl. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what they're doing and what your aims are with the with that group? Sure. Um, so Neural kind of came out of um, uh, a desire I had for connecting with other researchers who were interested in impacts 
um, ecological impacts of artificial light at night. Um, so when I was at, at Flinders working on, on the clownfish, there wasn't really anyone else at the university who was interested in, in the same questions that I was. And that's a really exciting and great place to be as a researcher, but it can also be you know, a little bit isolating. You don't have people to bounce, bounce ideas off of and, and develop questions. Um, and, and you I'm, can find yourself inventing the wheel again mm, and again. Yeah. You know, someone's already done it and yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm a big believer that um, collaboration leads to much better, more comprehensive science. So I didn't like that I was kind of doing my own thing all by myself. Um, and so I saw on, on Twitter, actually, that there were some researchers in Sydney who were starting a project on um, coastal light pollution in Sydney Harbour. So that was um, Katie DeForn at Macquarie Uni and... Mariana Meyer Pinto at um, UNSW. So I actually just sent them a message on Twitter, pretty much said, Hi, <laughs> I see you doing a research on light pollution. So my, uh, it would be really great if I came to Sydney and met up with you guys and found out a little bit more about your research and maybe we could come up with some ideas to, to collaborate on a project. And so we discussed having a little workshop in Sydney um, with the group of people in Sydney who, who were working on this coastal light pollution and, and myself. I thought it might be, you know, four or five people. So I applied for some funding um, to hold a workshop. I was successful. So I started emailing people that I, I knew might be interested in light pollution, thinking, oh, maybe we grow it to about 10 people. Um, and it just... Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Went crazy. Like, I just, um, people started emailing me. Like, I hear you. You're organizing a workshop. I'd love to join. I had to turn people down at the end because I only had <laughs> I had about 25 participants. This is all before COVID too, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> just, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is 2019. I was organizing it. Um, so yeah, I had massive response. And at, again, at first I thought I would just, uh, you know, get to know some of the other people in the marine field. And then um, it grew much bigger than that. Um, to like terrestrial ecologists, physiologists, uh, we've got managers, like local government, federal government representatives and um, practitioners all wanted to join. So we had, yeah, about 25 participants in the end, um, which was fantastic. And we yeah, held a workshop in Sydney, February, 2020, just before COVID entered Australia. Really, really good timing for that to have an in-person <laughs> workshop. Um, and yeah, what, be, what in my mind was hopefully just a small workshop where I could meet some other researchers with similar interests and hopefully come out with some collaborations ended up being a three-day workshop with, you know, uh, researchers across fields, uh, managers and practitioners, uh, where we discussed, um, impacts light pollution on, 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 um, ecological impacts of light pollution, 
uh, everyone presented some of their research. We discussed ways going forward um, and, you know, manage what managers want from us, for, for, um, from researchers to help them do what they need to do. And it was really clear to me during the workshop that um, this was something that a lot of people wanted to be connected in this space. And um, people wanted to continue that connection, that collaboration going mm-hmm. forward. So uh, we discussed um, officially creating a network um, in the workshop. And then Meryl was born, the Network for Ecological Research on Artificial Light. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, yeah, it's become much bigger and better than I ever imagined. And I asked Fabulous. So well done you so, so putting your hand up and just asking for a bit of, bit of um, collaboration. And it's amazing. It really is. And I think what it shows is that there's been, in my mind, um, an uh, uh, absence of conversations about light pollution in Australia for a very long time or, or that people have been doing it but they've been doing it singularly mm-hmm. and it really requires us to to actually come together to talk about it with a larger voice um you know in in our own little areas in our own areas of, of wisdom and, and connection um to to grow it because I know that Sometimes I've had conversations with people in the Northern Hemisphere who have said, oh, well, there's not much happening in the Southern Hemisphere. You know, you know well, there is. <laughs> there is. It's a lot. Yeah. If I may, I might just delve into a, a, a question that I know, well, I don't believe you have the answer for, but in, in that workshop, because I think I attended the first day, yeah. um, one of the questions was raised was, well, how can we come up with a way that we can collectively measure light over land and sea that, that we can all start talking the same way so that we're actually comparing apples with apples and oranges with oranges? And maybe you can just talk about some of the, the, the complexities of that. So, yeah, yeah it, is, it is complex and I don't believe we have an answer yet. Um, there has been some research come out in that space, some papers recently that, that discuss that um, in depth, which is good. I think that there's a lot of not just neural, but other groups in, in Europe who are also trying to answer this question. Um, it's difficult because the impacts of, of light are very um, species specific in a lot of ways. So different species will um, respond to different wavelengths um and different like they will perceive light differently so how you in terms of understanding ecological impacts you have to kind of understand how this the species you're interested in is is perceiving that light and um you know sky glow interfering with turtle uh, migrations or turtle navigation towards towards the, the ocean as they emerge from their their nests that's very different um light than like a direct light source mm-hmm. uh, a light or a, a light from a pier that's shining directly on to an anemone um so measuring that light you know it's difficult to to have a standardized measurement that um captures all the aspects of light that affects mm-hmm. all the organisms that you'd be interested in um, and on top of that, there's the complexities of measuring light underwater versus um, on land. So 
light penetrates water differently than, than air. Um, blue wavelengths penetrate further than the warmer red wavelengths. Um, mm. And that also depends on what kind of water you're looking at, the turbidity of the sediments <laughs> in the water. Um, and, you know, and then a lot of instruments that measure light don't go underwater. So it's just really, <laughs> it is challenging to find one measurement that you can measure, you know, in, in all realms and for all organisms and just and use mm. that to, to understand what's happening. Um, and then I guess there's the, well, the question, the point that you made earlier too, is that that light might be more impactful at certain times of the evening or the day mm-hmm. to a specific species than another. And yeah. So yeah. when, and I guess that's, that's probably more easy to, to qualify because you can, as a researcher, know that and then you can work that out. But it does make a difference as to, to the, you know, the, the way the, the machine is measuring it, I guess. You know, when do you, what, what conditions is it built for? Um, yeah. 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 Um, I think in a lot of fields, I think there's a desire to standardize things that you can compare across research, across you know, different groups doing different things and, and different questions. But I don't think by standardizing, you're going to actually capture everything that you need to understand for different questions. Mm. Since, um, it, I don't know, it's a tricky one. And some people probably disagree with me, but. Well, I think it's a little bit like psychology, which is an area that I spent a lot of time studying in. And, you know, we've got, the DSM four or whatever it is, which talks about you know you've got these attributes and therefore you're schizophrenic and this and this and, and we've pigeonholed people, and yet at the end of the day, the most beneficial work that you do with people is when you throw away that book and you just talk to them as a person and you delve into them specifically because that person's different to everybody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's just a matter of timing, really, isn't it? And and yeah. and, and funds or whatever is required to make it work. Yeah. yeah. Actually, as you were talking about the, the different lights, the different species, I was remembering Kelly Pendoli saying that the same turtle, and I think it was a loggerhead, in Florida, for example, reacts differently to light waves there than they do in Queensland. So the same species is not even dealing with light the same way. Yeah, so it's very difficult to generalise any, Um, except for, I think, just that light in general. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so that's the only generalization that we can make i think about um yeah how how ecosystems and organisms are going to react is that light is is disruptive yeah no it's i think finding finding a wavelength um to use instead of you know what we're using now that is less impactful that those are good strategies to consider but again because every species is going to be differently sensitive to different wavelengths it's it's you might it might be less impactful for some and then more for others i Mm. think the only thing that we know is that reducing light will be better Mm. Mm. and it's really hard for even the best and most well-intentioned engineers and industrial you know designers lighting engineers 
who really want to do the right thing and they say, okay, well, so what are the boundaries? We, you know, we want to work between this and this. Tell us what it is. Well, as you've just said, that shifts so many, you know, it's shifts so many times. It's fluffy as, as, as people talk about ecology. It's fluffy. You can't. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, look, we're almost at the very end of our conversation. It's gone so quickly and I really enjoyed it. But I, have, I can't go without asking you what your most memorable dark sky experience is. And I think most people that have turned it, you know, turned their attention to light pollution also remember the minute that they discovered darkness. Mm-hmm. What was yours? Well, I grew up, like I said, just outside of Ottawa in Canada and I lived like in the country. So I think I always had relatively dark skies compared to a lot of people growing up in cities. Um, so I, that didn't turn me into light pollution at that age, but, um, I, I do remember, um, I lived in this house, that had a, like a kind of a deck in our roof, mm-hmm. but, uh, I remember, I remember, um, going up on the deck and with our sleeping bags and, um, watching like meteor showers with my sisters and my parents. And, um, I think one year my sister got a, a telescope for her birthday and so we went up on the roof and like stars and and so those I think those are my earliest memories of of, of dark dark is darkish skies um I'm sure there was still some light pollution there but it was it was pretty, yeah. pretty remote where we lived um yeah, yeah I was always always um fascinated by the stars I think everybody is I've never really found anyone that says oh yeah last thing same one star same law but it, it, what is it is the fear is when if you never see it you don't appreciate it and yeah and that's what happens and I love the fact that often when I ask people that question it's a memory related to family or you know something quite potent about growing up yeah yeah mm-hmm. very nice so if people want to know more about you Emily where can they find you um they can Google me. <laughs> I guess it's Neryl. Like, look you up at Neryl. NerylOz.com. Mm-hmm. Um, find more information about the network. Mm-hmm. And you can send me an email anytime. Emily.Fobert, F-O-B-E-R-T, at unimalb.edu.au. Emily Faubert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, fantastic well that would be great because I'm sure people will have lots of questions and you might get inundated but if they um if if you also want to ask any questions to me and I can forward them to Emily as well that's also fine so anyway I'd love to thank you for your time Emily I know how busy you are and how you've been able to to fit us in for this today but it's been wonderful it's really nice to see you again too looking so well Thanks for having me. Love love talking about clownfish. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone again. All right. Good luck. Thanks for the research. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.